Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We've been in the book of Galatians now for several weeks. I hope you are falling in love with this uh, New Testament book or maybe falling back in love with this New Testament book. I was reading this week a number of authors and just their uh, perspective on the book of Galatians. And one of the most noted, uh, Martin Luther, a theologian and a reformer about 500 years ago, and the one who is uh, uh, most known for his scholarship on the book of Galatians. And here's what he said. He said, Galatians is my epistle. And it is to that epistle, as it were, that I am married. He says, it is my Katie Van Boren, uh, which was the name of his wife. And so I don't know, maybe that's going just a little bit too far. Uh, but I have, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed studying the book of Galatians anew in these weeks. And I hope it's been an encouragement to you. It's, it, it reminds us of just how amazing the grace of God is. It reminds us of just how powerful God's gospel is, how we can be right with uh, the Father. So I want to begin just with a little bit of a review. Uh, we've learned over the last several weeks that we are accepted by God because of the work of Christ. Uh, we were accepted by God by the work of Christ when we began our Christian journey, when we became believers, and we are accepted by the work of Christ every single day of our journey. We have learned, we have relearned that uh, our best efforts and our goodness contribute nothing to our salvation. We've learned that it's about Jesus and what Jesus has done from beginning to end. In fact, we talked last week and we said that our goal is not even to strive to please God, but our goal is to strive to trust God. And in trusting God, we will learn uh, to please God. But there's a problem with all of this. Uh, th these, these verses, these chapters we've studied in Galatians really uh, raise some questions. If, uh, if, if we're accepted by God simply by his grace and because of the work of Christ, if we're not accepted by God because of our goodness or our keeping of the law, then what's the point of the law? Why in the world did God put the Old Testament law in the book? Why do we have commands in the New Testament? Why does the Bible say that we should do these things? If we're not accepted by God because of them, then what's the point of the law? You can almost hear somebody saying to the Apostle Paul as you read the first two and a half chapters of Galatians, Paul, it seems like you have, you have merged Abraham, the Bible says in Genesis 12 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and the cross and you have so squeezed those together that you've squeezed out Moses in between and Moses gave us the law of God. If I'm not accepted by God because I have kept the law, then what in the world is the purpose of the law? Well, that's a really important question. 
And Paul was asked that question often. In fact, if you struggle with that, if you struggle with the grace of God just almost nullifying the law, then that's a good sign. It's a sign that you're beginning to understand just how amazing God's grace is, that you're beginning to understand the scandal of the cross, the offense of the cross. Uh, Paul, a few chapters later, chapter 5, verse 11, here in the book of Galatians, calls the cross an offense to some. Now, why would people be offended by the cross? Because the cross says that Christ has paid it all. And we, inside of us, we just want to feel like we can please God by the things we do. So what is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul anticipates that here in the, in the book of Galatians. He anticipates that question, and he gives, a, he gives an answer, an important answer. Uh, Paul was asked this question, by the way, repeatedly. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 6 that Paul had been asked this question, and so he rephrases it, and he says, should we go on sinning so that grace will abound? And he answers that question. And here he answers that question. So let's begin reading in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. He's going to restate the question and then give just an incredible answer. He says, why then was the law given? That's how he begins. If we're not accepted by God because of the law, if we're not accepted by God because of our best efforts or our goodness or our ability to keep the rules, then what's the purpose of the law? And then he answers that question by saying, it was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, that refers to Jesus, to whom the promise would made was made would come. He says, we're, the law was not given to bestow salvation. The law was not given to save us, but it was given to help us to see the need for salvation. Does that make sense? The law doesn't save us, but when we look into the law, when we look into the rules that God has given us, it makes us aware of just how badly we need the law. In fact, Paul is very uh, specific about this in the book of Romans. Let me just read to you a couple of verses. Romans 3.20, Paul says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. No one will be made right with God by keeping the rules. That's what that says. And then he goes down in Romans 7.7 7, and he says, I would not have known sin were it not for the law of God. Paul says, I wouldn't have even known I was a sinner were it not for the law. And so that goes right along with the first half of Galatians 3.19. Why was the law given? So that we would be aware of how badly we need some way apart from the law to be right, to be right with God. Now let's skip down to verse 21. He says, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? God made promises, God gave the law, there seems to be a connection between the two, especially in the Old Testament. So he asks, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. He says, if it would have been possible for you to have been saved by keeping the rules, then the way you would have had to have been saved was keeping the rules. Now, is it a good thing or a bad thing that we can't be saved by keeping the rules? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
It is a good thing. Because if, if the way a person could be right with God was to live a perfect life, then there would have been no need for Jesus to come, right? You don't need Jesus if you could just live a perfect life and please the Lord. And so Jesus wouldn't have come and you would not have lived a perfect life and you would have been separated from God forever. So it's a good thing that the law is not sufficient to make someone right with God. Now look at verse 22. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power. The scripture, the revelation of the law, the way we know what God's law is, it has imprisoned us so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Bible says that the scripture has made God's law clear. And because it's clear, because we know the standard of God, we're imprisoned. I mean, there's no way out, right? We know what God's law is. We know we have violated God's law. We know that we're guilty. There's no way out. You can't change that. You can't overcome it. You're stuck. There's no way out. You're in prison. Except for one thing. What is that? Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. Isn't this amazing? And then he goes on in verse, uh, well, verse 23, before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. And then verse 24, 23 really repeats 22. So go on to verse 24. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. And then he elaborates on that in verse 25, but since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Now it says that the law, before we came to know Christ, the law was our guardian. What's a, what's a guardian? Well, a guardian, I mean, we think of a parent. Parents are responsible for their children to point them in the right direction. Uh, the word here will be one that uh, the Greek word, the original language, one that would be familiar to all the educators that we have in the church. We have a lot of educators here. The, the word, word is pedagogue. And so it says that the, the law was, was your pedagogue. It was your, your tutor, your, your guardian, the one who, who, who made sure you were headed in the right direction until Christ came. So let's stop there for a moment and really make sure we understand exactly what the law, what its purpose was. And we're talking about the Old Testament law, but we're also talking about all the commands that we find in the New Testament. If, if these rules are not so that we will be accepted by God, then what is their purpose? What does it mean that these rules are guardians for us? Well, I think it means three things. First of all, the law is a guardrail, a guardrail. Now, you know what a guardrail is. You're driving down the interstate and there's one of those uh, concrete barriers between you and the opposing lane of traffic, and that's the guardrail. Well, the law serves as a guardrail. Now, if you veer over into that guardrail and you strike it going 70 miles an hour, that's not a good thing, right? It'll tear up your car. It'll cost thousands of dollars to repair. But is the guardrail a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a good thing 
Because while you may have just spent a few thousand dollars preparing, uh, repairing your car, at least it saved your life, right? Had, you, had the guardrail not been there and you swerve over into the opposing lane of traffic, uh, the, the result would have been far worse. And so the law as a guardian was given to help keep us in the right lane. You know, God's rules are not arbitrary, they're helpful. And when God says something is wrong, it's because if we did that, it would bring harm to us. When, when the Bible gives us rules about sex outside of marriage or sex before marriage, when the, when the Word of God gives us rules about what is marriage, a man and a woman, when God gives us rules about, about honesty and integrity, when God gives us these rules, it's not just because He wants to limit us, it is because He wants to protect us from greater harm. The law is a guardrail in our lives. Now, people get mad about all of these laws. People uh, resist the rules that God has given to us, but that's just, uh, th that's just crazy thinking. We, we ought to be appreciative of the laws. If you, were, if you were driving down an unknown road, a road that you had not been on before, and it's, uh, it's dark and maybe it's raining, and so it's not the best of uh, driving conditions, and there's a sign, a big yellow sign that says, slow down because there's a hairpin curve ahead. Now, are you going to be mad about that sign? Are you going to pull over and just curse that sign and say, how dare you tell me how to drive? This is America. I'll drive however I want to drive. No, you're not mad at the sign because you recognize the sign is there to protect you so that you don't run off the road, so you don't hit a tree, so that your life will go on. You're thankful for that sign. And so the law of God, what's its purpose? If it doesn't make us right with God, well, the first purpose is that it is, it's a guardrail for us. The, the second purpose is that it is a mirror. When we look into the law of God, it reflects who we are. It tells us and this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 7, 7, when he said, I would not have known I was a lawbreaker were it not for the law. It reflects the sin that's in our lives so that we know how far we are from God. You sit down and read the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of debate today about what's the role of the Ten Commandments and the significance of the Ten Commandments. Well, I'll tell you, you read the Ten Commandments and you understand the Ten Commandments, it convicts you, right? When I read the Ten Commandments, I'm reminded of how sinful I am. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, I have a love-hate relationship with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' longest sermon, it's in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. You can read the whole sermon in 10 minutes. Don't read too much into that. But, uh, but when I sit down and read the Sermon on the Mount, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's so, uh, there's so much information packed into that, into that brief sermon, uh, but, it's, but it's so convicting. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, I come away just with a fuller realization of how, of how sinful I am. And so when the law, when the Bible says, when Paul says the law is our guardian, it means it's, it's our guardrail, but it also means that it's our, our mirror and it helps us to see the need uh, that we have for, for the Lord. I, I was reading this week, uh, as, as I've been studying the book of Galatians, I've been going back and reading uh, some old writers, uh, some dead theologians, so to speak, 
And, uh, and I've learned quite a bit. And I, I read this week a, a line from Drew Jukes, a theologian about 300 years ago, English theologian, um, Puritan. Uh, listen to what he wrote. He says, Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. And so God gives us the law. Satan comes along and says, ah, oh, there's a way for you to be right with God. Just really try to keep the rules. But God says, no, the law has the opposite purpose. I gave you the law not so that you could use it to be right with me, but so that you would look at it and see how wrong with me you are. You see, Satan is using it for one purpose. God intended a completely different purpose. The law is a mirror. Now, there's one more thing. The law is also a GPS. So after we come to know the Lord, then what's the purpose of the law? It's not to remind us how sinful we are. We know we're sinful. So what is its purpose? Its purpose is to teach us how to live, how to, how to navigate through this life, how to have a God-honoring marriage, how to raise godly children, how to, how to be a, a person of integrity. The law is our GPS. Uh, I, I read one author this week that said that the law serves as the railroad tracks. And so you think about railroad tracks, they just go one place, right? You can't just go a block and take a left and, 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 and go a couple more blocks and take a right. I mean, that, that railroad track, I know there are bends and turns and switches, but uh, let, let's, we'll just have a more simple approach. That railroad track goes somewhere, right? And so there's a railroad track behind our church, a block or two, and I think it goes to Lufkin, I'm not sure, but you get on that railroad track and it will determine your destination. Now, it doesn't propel you. You need a locomotive to push you down the track. Well, the law doesn't push us down the track, but it shows us the track. It shows us the way to live out the Christian life. Now, the gospel is what motivates us. It's the locomotive that pushes us down the track, but the law, it's our GPS. So do you begin to see what the purpose of the law is? It's not to make you right with God. It is to create some guardrails in your life, safety in your life. It is to reflect your sinfulness so that you're aware of how much you need what Jesus has done for you. And it's the GPS for all your days. So look back at verse 19 that we read a moment ago. Why, was the, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, Jesus, to whom the promise would made, was made, would come. Now, how do we put all of this together? We've learned in uh, Galatians 1 and 2 and, and 3 that we're not saved by keeping the law, uh, that we need to focus on trusting Christ, having faith in Christ. That's how we please God. That's how the sacrifice of Christ is applied to our life. But obviously, the law is important. The Old Testament filled with rules. The New Testament, many, many rules in the New Testament. So how do we put all of this together? How, how, I, you might say, I understand now theologically what is the purpose of the law, but I want to know, how do, I, how do I live in that tension between God accepts me based on the work of Christ and God expects me to keep the law? Well, this was hinted in the very last verse that we read a moment ago, verse 26, for through faith, 
you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So the key is we need to live like sons. We need to live like sons. And that connects with the law and God's expectation, but God's acceptance. So, so I want you to see that. Now, we're going to skip verse 27 and, 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 and the verses surrounding that. And, and those are very important. In fact, we're going to come back to that in two weeks. But I want to look down to chapter 4. The first three verses really repeat what we've learned in the last verses that we've read. But let's pick up in verse 4. He goes on, when the time came to completion... That means when it was time, when God had determined it was the right time for Jesus to come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God sent Jesus so that Jesus would die on the cross and we could be adopted as a son of God. We could be in God's family. Now he's going to explain that. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. Now you've heard the phrase, invite Jesus into your heart. That's where this comes from. But you see here, it's, a, it's richer than that. Uh, that when we're adopted as a son of God, as a child of God, that God sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. And we live with a spirit of sonship. We live as though we're God's children, living in God's household, because we are. And then look at the last couple of words there in verse 6. We'll, we'll back up a little bit. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, that's a, a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. Uh, many uh, Bible scholars say that we could translate it daddy, that we can, we can approach the father uh, so, so intimately, we could go to God and say, God, I'm, I'm your son and you're my dad and I, and I appeal to you. And, and that, that certainly is uh, one way the word was, was used. If you continue to, to read verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. So there's been a change. You were a slave before, a slave to sin, but now you are a son of God. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. So let's talk just a minute about what it means to live like a son. Now that we understand uh, the purpose of the law and we see that there's a tension between we're accepted by grace because of the sufficient work of Christ, but there's an expectation we follow the law. How do we live that out? What does it mean to be a son? So I'm going to go through this very quickly. First of all, the nature of the relationship that we have with God. If we're his son, then what's the nature of that relationship? Three things. We are not guest, we are not a guest subject to the tentative favor of the host. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, if you're invited over to somebody's house, you have been invited over because the host, the person whose house it is, uh, would like to spend some time with you. But how long you're able to stay, and in fact, whether you get invited over or not, is all dependent upon the favor of the host. And your stay in their home a few hours, or maybe they invite you for the weekend and it's a few days, it's always temporary, right? You, you, you are there as long as the host wants you there, no longer. It is a temporary stay. Well, because we're sons, here's the first thing I want you to recognize. It's not temporary. 
my relationship with God. He is my daddy. He is my father. It's not a temporary relationship. It's not come or go. It's not, well, God's happy with me now, and so I'm close to him, but next week God's no longer happy with me, and so our relationship is, is, is strained, and I am estranged from God. It's not temporary. It's permanent. That's the first thing being a son of God means. The, the second thing is this, we're not an employee subject to certain requirements. Now, if you have a job and you have a boss, uh, you know that if you're going to keep your job, you've got to meet certain expectations, right? There's a time in the morning you're supposed to get there. There's a, a, an amount of time you're supposed to stay. There are a certain number of widgets you're supposed to make or calls you're to make or, or relationships you're to begin. But there are expectations for you. And if you don't fulfill those expectations, eventually what's going to happen? You're no longer going to be employed there. Your employment depends upon you meeting the expectations. Now listen, it's, it's a whole different thing in a family. When you're in a family, when you're a child, your, your relationship with your parents is not dependent upon meeting certain expectations. That, that's the wonderful thing about a family. So, you know, I, I've got three daughters, and I don't want you to tell them this, but we have rules and expectations at our house, but if they don't do any of them, if they break every rule, well, they're still my daughter, and I still love them, and my love won't go down. I won't love them any less because it's not an employee relationship. They're my daughters, and I'm their dad. Do you see that? And so to be a son of God means exactly that. It's not temporary, and it's not dependent upon me meeting expectations. In fact, I joke about uh, don't... Don't tell my daughters that they can break all of the rules. But no, I, I, want, I want my daughters to know that because I want them to know, and I want them to keep the rules, but I want them to know that the love of their father, their earthly father, does not depend upon the grades they make, the rules they keep, the cleanliness of their room. I, it definitely doesn't depend upon that. <laughs> I want them to know that. You might say, well, that's giving them a free pass. Well, in some ways it is. But that's the way I love them. And somebody might say, well, pastor, to stand up and say that about our heavenly father just gives people a free pass. Well, I guess in some ways it does. Uh, but that's just the way God loves us. He has adopted us into his family. And that's real. Now, the, the third thing, nature of the relationship, it means we're adopted with the full rights of a son. Full rights of a son. And we'll talk about what some of those are because here in the next section, I want to talk about the benefits of that relationship. Uh, how do we benefit? What are the benefits that are ours because we're sons of God, children of God? Well, first of all, acceptance and favor. We have the full acceptance of God. We have the favor of God. Now, how could that be? Because some of you are thinking, me included, you know, the things I've done in my life, Maybe even some people, the things I've done recently, how could God's favor still rest on me? Well, because it doesn't really have anything to do with you. It has to do with Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life for you. And so God accepts you not based on how well you kept the rules this last week. God accepts you 
based upon what Christ has done. And so you have the full acceptance and the favor of God. Uh, Christ's work was perfect and it was complete so that God's acceptance is perfect and continual. That's good news. So we should run to God, right? People avoid God because there's uh, junk in their lives. No, we should run to God. When, when my kids think I'm angry at them, they avoid me. You know what that's like? Maybe, maybe you have kids and, and you know that, or maybe you are a kid and you know, you know when dad's mad, you stay away. When my kids think I'm angry, they avoid me. And we do the same thing with God. But what we need to understand is God's not angry at us because God sees me through the lens of the sufficient sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so the second benefit I want to mention is just access. Uh, it says Abba, Father. Uh, the, the way Paul says this a little later, or, or the writer of Hebrews, I should say, says a little later that, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. God's anxious to hear what we have to say. You know, my kids always have access to me. They can call me anytime. They can talk to me about anything. I don't ever want them to feel that dad's too busy. Uh, they have the phone number that always makes my phone ring no matter what. Uh, and, and they have it. My wife has it. That's it, right? So, I mean, they have an access that is privileged. We have an access to the Father that's privileged. Isn't that amazing? So, um, so we ought to run again to the Lord. The third benefit, shelter and protection. I, I, I think about my kids. Just that, That's the only way I know to explain what it means to be a child of God is to think about what in, in an imperfect way it means to be my child. Uh, my, ch my children can always come to me for shelter and protection. If, if my kids are having a bad day, if my kids have a problem, if they're, if they're fear, if they're experiencing fear, I want them to run to me, come to dad. Now, there's a difference, obviously, between me and God. My kids can, can always come to me. I may not always be able to protect them. I'm, I won't always have the answer. I won't always have the solution. But, but the thing about running to our Heavenly Father is not only does he have the same interest that, that we would have to protect our children, but, but he has the ability to do it. And so there's shelter and protection. Then there's sustenance and provision. You know, as a dad, I provide for my kids. I, I put food on the table. I put braces in their mouths. I uh, buy some, some uh, college textbooks. I, I, I provide uh, health care for them. I, there's a shelter over there. I, I provide the stuff that they need. That's what a, what a good father does. Well, our father, in a much more perfect way, provides for our sustenance and our provision. Why? Because we're sons of God. God has that desire. Uh, Matthew 7 and 11, Jesus said this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So if we know how to bless our kids, then how much more does God know and desire to bless his kids? And he, he has not only the desire, but the ability. Uh, Psalm 50, 10, I love this verse. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I think that's a Texas verse, right? And what, what it means is that uh, 
there, there's no need that you can have for which God is short of resources and unable to meet. What does it mean that we're sons of God? It also means that we can go to him for guidance. God has all wisdom. That we can go to him and, and seek an ally. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is for me and I will not be afraid. The Lord's on my side. I'm on his side. Probably a better way of saying it. But that's the way the psalmist said it. The Lord is for me. What team, does, what team does God pull for? He pulls for my team. He pulls for me. And I will not be afraid. What does it mean to be a son of God? It means that we will receive the full inheritance of God. When we get to heaven, God says, everything that is mine is yours. You understand that's what it means to have an inheritance? If you have the inheritance of your father, then then. There comes a time when everything that is his becomes yours. We, we won't be renters in heaven. We, we will be stakeholders in heaven because we, we, we're, we're not just given an audience with God. We're the son of God. We're sons of God, children of God. We'll have the inheritance. And then the last thing I wanted to say, benefits of relationship, because we're children of God, then we have rest. You know, the thing about being a son, being a daughter, being a child is, is that you can go home and just find rest. And, and I know many of you here, you, uh, you've lost your parents uh, and, and you have gone through that. I, I, I just, I, I'm not there at, at this point and I can't imagine all of that. But I imagine that's hard in this sense because in some way you lose the ability just to, just to go home. You, you know what I'm talking about? I haven't lived at home in decades. I, uh, I don't get home as often as I want to. And when I go home, I, I really don't need my mom to, uh, to do anything for me. I, I, you know, I, I don't go home and, and have a hundred questions, you know, how do I you know, how do I fix the sink? How do I open a bank account? I mean, I don't really have questions for her. I, I don't need any of her stuff. I don't need her to give me money. I don't, I, don't, I don't need anything. But I long to go home. Because even though I'm not there often, when I go into that home and I just sit down on one of those chairs and I'm surrounded by my, by my mom and my stepdad in that home, I'm just, I'm just at peace. You know, what it, you know what it means just to, just to go home? Well, we're children of God. And in God, we can have a rest that is just, that is just amazing. I was trying to think about why home is so great. I mean, there are people, honestly, that I probably know better than my mom. People I spend more time with than her. People I talk to more often than her. People you know, that are maybe in my... You know, my, my, my same age or my same, uh, you know, they're, they're pastors, they have similar lifestyles, those kind of, but, but there's just something about going home. And so I was trying to, trying to describe that, trying to figure out what's so wonderful about that. And here's what I wrote down. When I go home, there's no competition. There's no, you know, how'd you do, how'd you do versus last year? And, you know, is it, are you better than this person or worse than this? Well, not, my mom never thinks about that. When I'm home, there's no competition. When I'm home, there's no judgment. 
When I'm home, there's no condemnation. When I'm home, there's no need to impress. I can't impress my mom. I'm not trying to impress my mom. My mom just loves me. She couldn't love me more if I did something that somebody called impressive. She just loves me. And there's no reason to be guarded. I'm not careful with what I say. I just go and I'm me. See, we're, we're sons of God, all of us, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. And so here, here's the best way to connect what it means to be fully accepted by, not by works, not by following the rules, but by Jesus, but also to live with a God who has rules. What is, how do you put those together? They don't seem like they fit. Well, they fit like they fit in a family, like my kids. They're rules, but they're not accepted by those rules. They're accepted because their dad loves them. I am accepted because my dad loves me and because Jesus has paid for my sins. Do I keep the rules? Well, I want to, and I strive to, because I'm part of the family. I, I read one author put it like this. Let the rules, let the law, he used the word law, he said, let the law of God lead you to God, to Jesus, to the grace of God. And then let the grace of God lead you to the law of God. You understand? Look into the law and recognize how badly you need help. And let the law lead you to run and embrace the grace of God and receive forgiveness and be adopted as a son. And then let that grace and that forgiveness lead you to want to keep the rules because you're a part of the family and you want to honor the father. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. You know, I know every time I stand and preach, I talk to some people uh, who are still just trying to impress God and be right with God by doing better. I hear it in counseling. I hear it in emails that people send me. I hear it in conversations where people say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do better and I'm going I'm to keep the rules and, and I've drawn a line in the sand and I'm, I can just hear the guilt that they're struggling with. Listen, if that's you, you're never going to get it straightened out. You're never going to earn it. You're never going to measure up. I hate to bust your bubble, but all the commitments and New Year's resolutions and I will nevers, it's not going to amount to anything. It hadn't before and it won't in the future. Your only hope is Jesus, who has paid the penalty for your sins and will free you from the authority of sin. You must trust that what he has done is enough, it is sufficient. And so I invite you today to run to Jesus. Now many of us, we have run to Jesus, but we still struggle with this law, with, with condemnation and guilt. Is the law important? Well, of course it is. Keeping the rules important? Well, of course it is. But not as an employee, but as a son. Would you thank the Lord today for your sonship and say, I want to live this week honoring my dad because of his love for me. Father, thank you that I'm a son.
forever and that you love me perfectly like a son. Now let me live as a son that honors his dad. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand as we sing.